massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. If it seemed like war... It's like a garbage pile. It's, just, it's unbelievable. I found myself this morning looking back at things and thinking of things that I didn't really think about during the... During the thing, and, and tears still come to my eyes. Seemed like war. They are saying there's an eight-foot crater, and several, a uh, couple of cars at least, have been joined by the heat and the force of the explosion. In Lebanon, a spokesman for the Iranian-backed Hezbollah said, "We are only interested in liberating our land from the Israeli occupation. We have no relation with the explosion inside the United States." There you see the farmhouse right now. Uh, this is where two individuals, we believe two, maybe more, uh, were being sought. Seemed like war. That's a farmhouse said to be owned by two brothers with possible links to the bombing. They are identified as James Douglas Nichols and Terry Lynn Nichols. Law enforcement sources say those two men and McVeigh were expelled from a paramilitary group for being too radical. Officials are refusing to speculate on what motive any of these suspects might have. He told me earlier this evening, having to do with experiments in bomb-making and a passionate anger against the federal government for its actions against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas two years back, is circumstantial but telling. One suspect, according to our sources, is in custody now. 27-year-old Tim McVeigh, the crew cut John Doe number one in the FBI sketch, had been stopped for speeding in this Mercury Marquee. 60 miles north of Oklahoma City, about 90 minutes after the bombing. Reno ended at a wider conspiracy. I remind everyone that John Doe number two remains at large. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. There is a strong likelihood that other persons are involved in this tragedy as well. Seemed like war. Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our third look into the Oklahoma City bombing. Before we get into this week's episode, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, the Deathcast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. You can find me on most social media networks underneath those monikers. If you're interested in signing up for the show's official newsletter, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the sign up button, or drop me a note and let me know what you think of what I am doing. While at CorpseCreekPublishing.com, please consider donating to the show by clicking on the donate button. Buy me a pack of smokes or a cup of coffee. Let me know that you appreciate what I am doing. If you're interested in joining the show's Patreon feed, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can become a Patreon member and receive access to exclusive content. Lastly, if you really like the show, please go to your favorite podcast hosting site, 
click on the subscribe or follow button and leave a five-star review any written five-star reviews of course i do read out live on air for those of you who have done so i appreciate it and don't forget to share the show on social media all right now that all of that is out of the way get yourself something to drink find a nice comfy chair kick back relax i've got my coffee i've got my cigarettes let's go into the crypt when we left off last week we had discussed waco texas and the fbi atf assault on the branch davidian compound and what that had done to mcveigh's psyche i.e how it had it affected him and helped him reach the conclusion that he needed to strike back against what he saw as in his own words the ultimate bully that being the united states government we also discussed Tim's early life growing up in upstate New York, the effects his mother's alcoholism and promiscuity had upon him, as well as living with his father and his grandfather, who influenced him greatly. We left off with McVeigh in 1988, going and joining the United States Army as well as the fact that due to his survivalist inclinations and love of firearms, Tim, through working at a armor car company as well as going to various gun shows, began to be introduced to a subculture within the entire survivalists movement, which is the white nationalist movement. Specifically, we discussed his finding of the novel The Turner Diaries, written by founder of the National Alliance, William Pierce, and the effect that this had on Tim's still-budding worldview. McVeigh enlisted in May of 1988, shortly after turning 20 years old. Because of his higher-than-average intelligence, he scored in the top 10% of the general technical test, leaving for boot camp on May 30th and arriving at Fort Benning, Georgia for basic combat training. Something that is not often mentioned is the fact that McVeigh was not assigned to a regular battalion within boot camp instead he was sent to an experimental organization called the cohesion operational readiness training unit or cohort for short the cohort unit was different in that normally when you go through boot camp once you are finished you are sent to either your schooling or to your combat unit. Members of the cohort unit, however, stayed together for the entirety of their enlistment. The idea being that being with the same group of individuals for this entire period of time, with the idea being that being with your unit for the entire length of your enlistment, an unheard of 
level of unit cohesion would develop, along with advanced group training and a commitment to the unit's mission. It was thought at this period of time that these kind of units would quote-unquote lessen soldier turbulence as along with high levels of psychological breakdown in battle. Should be noted that according to the book Aberration in the Heartland of Reality, The Many Lies of Timothy McVeigh, the author points out that similar attempts by the United States military prior to this to form similar units had resulted in higher than average levels of individuals going AWOL, that is, absent without leave, as well as suicide rates. One aspect of the cohort units that McVeigh found to be distressing was the fact that members who were in these units were unable to leave them, meaning McVeigh would not have an opportunity to go and join the Special Forces, which was his stated goal and purpose, at least for three years. People who knew McVeigh have stated that had he known going in that this is what he was going to be assigned to, McVeigh very well likely would not have enlisted. Criminologist Mark Ham, who was working at the Indiana State University and was also a consultant for Timothy McVeigh's defense team, stated that the Army's cohort experiment provided the mechanism and most important source of indirect support for the terrorism that would later occur in Oklahoma. The reason for this is because members of the cohort unit really did become a family-type unit, and it was within this unit that McVeigh met Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, both men who would become McVeigh's best friends and closest confidants, as well as his co-conspirators. So who were these other men that McVeigh met within the cohort unit? Terry Nichols was a 33-year-old farmer and family man from Michigan. Because of the crisis that hit Midwest farms during the mid to late 1980s, Nichols' family faced the very real possibility that they were going to lose the family farm. And because of this, when his wife at the time suggested he join the army, he decided to follow her suggestion. Nichols was described as an introverted family man who was spastic and nerdy. Nichols, who was the oldest man within the unit, was called pops and old man by other individuals within their unit. And I can tell you from my own experience in the United States Navy, we had some individuals who were older than us in boot camp as well as in the lower ranks of the enlisted on the carrier that I was on. Everyone had a nickname one individual was known as Old Man. There was another individual who was known as Pops. Both of these were E3 
E2s, E3s, but they were much older than the rest of us, and so were really looked up to by the younger enlisted men as a quasi-father figure, somebody who could help guide them because they had so much more life experience than the rest of us did. Nichols was described as helpful, friendly, and outgoing, with one soldier stating that while Nichols often acted like an idiot, he was in reality extremely intelligent, an individual who was either always reading a book or working on fixing something. Such was Nichols' level of intelligence that he was eventually assigned to headquarters. Another individual within this unit described Nichols as a very nervous individual who never wanted to get in trouble. He was more often than not the type of individual who would rat others out should they do something wrong out of fear that it was going to come back on him. The other man whom McVeigh gravitated towards was Michael Fortier. Fortier was 22 years old from Arizona. He was your typical late 80s, early 90s guy with long hair, flannels, into what would later be described as grunge music. He liked to party, smoke pot, use methamphetamine. Other soldiers who knew him described him as energetic, blunt, and outspoken, although it was noted that he had a bad attitude. During boot camp, McVeigh regularly wrote home to his friend, Steve, and his sister, Jennifer, explaining that there was a general feeling of camaraderie and, between himself and the other members of the cohort unit. Eventually, however, McVeigh's letters stopped focusing so much on what was going on with himself and within the unit and began to focus on his particular views of current world events. While in another episode he discussed how the use of tear gas on the recruits had been extremely harrowing for him, much later on, after he was arrested, McVeigh would convey to his biographers as well as his defense team that he likened the experience with the tear gas to what he knew those who had been trapped inside of the Waco standoff had experienced when it was pumped into them. And it was one of the reasons he gave for having sympathized with those individuals. It is interesting to note that McVeigh, long after having officially ended his term in the military, wrote, In basic training, when I was being conditioned and brainwashed, I recognized it. I knew it was happening to me, but I went along with it. In basic, when our platoon stood at attention, we had to snap to attention and said, Blood makes the grass go, kill, kill, kill. Every time we came to attention, which must have been 20 times per day, we had to chant that. I had to prevent myself from smirking. I knew a lot of the guys around me weren't smart enough to pick up on that. That's one aspect of military life I personally can tell you from my own experience is not discussed enough. There is a level of 
brainwashing and conditioning that happens within the United States military through various routines, things that you are made to say, as well as an inundation with propaganda. Now, mind you, people hear propaganda and they automatically think conspiracy theory or the Third Reich and Russia. Propaganda is all around us every day in every facet of our lives, whether we believe it or not, it is there. A great example is the movies and television shows that we choose to ingest. The intelligence community has openly admitted to the fact that they have a liaison between themselves and Hollywood, whose job it is to not only offer technical assistance on certain movies, but also to bring scripts to the studios for production as well as instruct studios on how a certain subject should be approached and treated within a specific production. This is most notable within the war movies that have been produced during the last 80 years, even going up so far as into films like Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, there is a certain spin and galleonfantry that is placed upon U.S. soldiers. This is by design, but it extends much further than that, especially if you look back towards the 1980s, which is the period that we're covering right now. There was a proliferation of militarized toys aimed at young boys. Some people will say it's because war sells that were what boys are into. Yes, that's true to a certain extent. However, the reality of the matter is the United States government had liaisons between all these different toy companies and movie production houses helping them to develop this stuff. That is a form of propaganda. War is glorified in this country. Not so much as it was back in the day, but it is still glorified to some extent. That is the type of propaganda individuals in the military undergo. Many, like myself, don't even realize they've undergone it until after the fact. I know for myself, it was a good two or three years after my enlistment ended that it dawned on me what it was that I had been inundated with. Although it had dawned on me slightly when I was overseas, and I always like to throw this story out, while overseas we had a direct from CNN, specifically from the Armed Forces Network. We had two versions of CNN. One was the one, the feed that went to American households, which was the same one that everybody in this country sees, while the other one was the Armed Forces Network, which gave a much different view of things. It was very pro-American, very pro-armed forces, different again from what we were inundated with 
in America. And I saw this and it clicked into my head, but it was, again, years before I realized that we were being hit with propaganda. So that's the kind of stuff that McVeigh was seeing and what he was being inundated with while he was in boot camp. And again, once they graduated boot camp and actually got out into the army proper. McVeigh's letters home during the rest of his enlistment, in addition to talking about whatever it was that was going on with him as well as his changing worldviews and topics of social interest, he began really to focus in on the various types of weapons that he was able to get his hands on. This is not only limited to the weaponry that the United States military allowed him to use, but also his burgoing gun collection, McVeigh, was known to have quite an extensive collection of guns and ammo, not only in his barracks, but also back home. McVeigh was known to, on occasion to send ammunition back to his father's house in upstate New York. McVeigh referred to this ammunition as his nest egg. He tried to play this off by stating that it was ammunition that had gone out used during training gives the first glimmer of an idea that McVeigh, while he was in the United States Army, not, did not necessarily stand for all of the things the United States Army did, meaning it's known that he did steal guns and ammunition from the base that he was stationed at while he was enlisted. Upon completing basic training, McVeigh scored perfectly on all of his target practicing, earning the distinction of an expert sharpshooter. I'm throwing this out there because information on both Nichols and McVeigh's military careers is very scant and hard to come by. By this, I mean the United States military, specifically the Pentagon, has sealed both of their records. One of the things that has come out of this is that McVeigh had an inordinate amount of visits to sickle. Some have postulated that this may be evidence of some form of sinister experimentation going on, but I can tell you from, again, my own experience having gone through boot camp that it is not unheard of for individuals to visit sick hall quite regularly. In fact, it is encouraged if you are feeling under the weather or in pain as the individuals who are guiding you through boot camp want you to be able to finish it and not get sent back to the beginning or get bounced out because something happened while you were undergoing your training. After finishing boot camp and gaining his Master Marksman's badge, McVeigh arrived at Fort Riley, Kansas, where McVeigh, in letters home to his friend Steve, points out that they are starting to receive more vaccinations, many more than he had ever experienced before. 
should be noted that during boot camp, whether you are vaccinated or not, for the most part, you do get an inordinate amount of vaccinations, much more than the general population does. McVeigh and Michael Fortier ended up being assigned to the 1st Infantry Division, while Nichols was reassigned to Bravo Command. Basically, what this means is that although they were still within the same unit, they broke members of the unit off and sent them to different commands. When they were in these commands, they did the things that they would do with their command, but at the end of the day, they were still attached to this cohort unit. It's been noted that members of the cohort unit had an extremely high level of drug use, domestic violence, and insubordination, with one member calling them, quote, rude, crude, and socially unacceptable, warped. There was all sorts of strange characters in that company. It was really wild. Again, much of this information is coming from the book Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh. Some people have asked me why I do this throughout some time, and often it's because I'm taking text directly from my primary source material, in this case, this book. The reason that I am using this book for my primary source material as it is the most cohesive and concise source material on the topic of the Oklahoma City bombing that I have encountered with page after page after page of footnotes after each chapter in the Kindle edition, there are often links to go and read these source materials yourself. So I am just throwing that little bit of information out there. McVeigh inside of this unit was called the most normal guy in the whole company. It was noted he did not smoke drink, used drugs. He was polite, well-mannered, and clean-cut. He was noted as being an individual who never pissed anyone off and who did his best to stay out of trouble. It was also noted that, unlike other members of their command, McVeigh was a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And while it was noted that he was really the perfect soldier, many felt that he did not fit in with them. He was seen as being better educated and more serious than the rest of them. Because of all this and McVeigh's propensity to read voraciously, he was given the nickname of McFly, who anyone who has seen Back to the Future will get that reference instantly in terms of George McFly, the main protagonist's father, who is a rather quiet, mild-mannered book nerd. During this period of time, McVeigh continuously prepared himself to join the Special Forces. Remember, his enlistment for the three years was only to the cohort unit, meaning that he could not leave it to pursue being in the Special Forces. So, until that initial three-year cycle ended, McVeigh had to 
resign himself to the fact that he needed to get himself as in as great a physical condition as humanly possible for when the day eventually did come that he could go out and join the special forces. In the midst of all of this, his training to be in special forces, his voracious reading, his normal duties as a soldier, as well as his growing collection of guns and ammunition, McVeigh was seen as a good egg and was oftentimes invited over to have dinner with members of his unit and their families, with many remarking that he was very good with children. In contrast to this, McVeigh oftentimes wrote to his sister that he was sleeping with the wives of his friends. I was in the military, yeah, this stuff does happen very often. Given everything I know about McVeigh and the type of individual he seems to have been, I doubt that this actually did happen. Again, he was not the type of individual to whom those opportunities would have been offered. And I say that from my own first-hand knowledge. We had many individuals in my division in the Navy folks that we referred to as Joe Navies, you you know, the perfect sailor, women didn't go for them. They were too straight-laced, too tightly wound, not the type of individual that a woman is going to willingly have relations with. We will be back in just a moment. From author Alistair Cross comes the Vampires of Crimson Cove series. When the sun goes down and the fog rolls in, the darkness comes out to play in the little town of Crimson Cove. By day, it's an idyllic mountain village, but after sunset, stay inside and lock your doors. Between dusk and dawn, the streets run red with blood. Two brothers, Brooks and Cade Coulter, know all about the darkness. One fights it, and the other is part of it. And although he tries to stay on the side of light, can you ever really trust a vampire? This is what New York Times best-selling author of the Walking Dead series, Jay Anansinga, has to say. Put Bram Stoker in a giant cocktail shaker. Add a pinch of Laura K. Hamilton, a shot of John Carpenter, and a healthy jigger of absinthe. And you'll end up with Alistair Cross's modern gothic chiller, The Crimson Corset, a deliciously terrifying tale that will sink its teeth into you from page one. The Vampires of Crimson Cove series is available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audible. Also available on Kindle Unlimited. We are back. In addition to discussing in his letters to his sister his supposed liaisons with all of his friends' wives, McVeigh really began to hone in on his own political ideology, specifically his belief that no one had the right to infringe upon his right to own and bear arms, no matter what type of weaponry it was. Concerning the Brady Bill, which was a piece of legislation put forth 
by William Brady, who was the press secretary for President Ronald Reagan, who had been left crippled in a failed 1981 assassination attempt of Reagan by John W. Hinckley. This piece of legislation called for a ban on assault weapons. McVeigh often referred to those who were in support of this bill as quote-unquote liberal motherfuckers. McVeigh did not only hold hatred towards what he saw as liberals, but also for the Republican Party, which he called filled with idiots, and he saw both parties as being anti-freedom big brother types. In one letter to his sister, McVeigh is quoted as saying, the problem with liberals is they're anti-freedom big brother types. The question is, how much is it the right of government to take by force, which is what the IRS does? With state and federal taxes, the government takes more than 50% of what you earn. This makes you a slave with the government saying, thanks for growing the corn, I'll take it. The government takes our guns because the government cannot trust us. They believe they can violate the Constitution if it protects people from themselves. So we can see here McVeigh's anti-government leanings are really starting to blossom, even while he was enlisted in the United States Army. I can tell you from my experience, again, that that is fairly odd. No one that I knew of, at least openly, expressed those sorts of views while I was enlisted in the Navy, although I do know a number of individuals who have since grown those types of views, not necessarily in the vein of the white power movement, but just in an overall sense that they feel that the government is their enemy and that they are slaves to said government. It should be noted, however, that no one who was in the army with McVeigh recalls him ever making these anti-government statements in their presence. In April of 1989, McVeigh and the rest of cohort were sent to Heidelberg, West Germany, where they were set to have an orientation at their urban warfare training camp. McVeigh was noted for his exemplary performance, specifically as he earned the West German equivalent of an expert infantry badge. McVeigh told different stories concerning his time in Germany, stating that they were instructed on how to infiltrate and make their way through houses, barns, and other enclosed structures. He also told a tale of how he and three other members of the cohort unit were approached by a German man who McVeigh believed to have been a member of the German intelligence community. McVeigh believed that the man was attempting to blackmail them. This would lead McVeigh's defense team to actually open up an official inquest into what exactly it was that McVeigh had been doing in Germany. Although, as with many things, the government outside of the... He was stationed there as part of this unit for this purpose, 
was very tight-lipped on anything else concerning McVeigh's time within West Germany. Some have speculated that McVeigh may have become a sleeper agent for either East Germany or the Russian NKVD during this period of time. Again, however, his service record is all but sealed, and given McVeigh's anti-government stance, government of any form, I personally don't believe that to be the truth. But it is important to bring that up here, as McVeigh continued up until the day he died to intertwine stories of various intelligence agency assets being involved in his life, his actions, and his movements. This is just the first of many such instances that McVeigh is known to have mentioned this. One of these individuals we will get into when we start discussing Elm City, but for now, it suffice to say that there is evidence that McVeigh had contact with at least one known member of the West German intelligence community. While in West Germany, McVeigh's anti-government views continued to evolve, so much so that by the time he left West Germany, he saw both the states as well as the federal government as leeches upon the populace. In a letter to his friend Steve, after returning from Germany, McVeigh stated, quote, in one year, the influence of the army and the people around me have changed, are changing me in many ways. The good part is that I am aware enough to notice these changes within myself. The bad part is the changes. I'm hesitant to wonder what two more years will do to me. To sum up the changes in my attitude, I can only conclude that, and I say this with fair amounts of self-shame, that I led a very sheltered life in New York. I have seen things that I could never believe existed. I am beginning to see a much larger portion of the whole picture as seen firsthand. Gang warfare, five deaths, four stabbings, one shooting. How widespread drug use really is. People you would never suspect. The insignificance of law enforcement and many more startling things. To survive in the system to which I have now been exposed, I've had to change, to adapt, and I will never do be the same. I do things now out of necessity, which I would have never dreamt of doing back home. Would you ever consider doing, besides in road horror fantasy, regularly running from the police instead of pulling over? No, I cannot go on. This is turning into admission of self-guilt. These things I say again are no longer criminal that are necessary to survive in the environment I live in. I still feel self-shame in telling you of the corrupt world I have slipped into, but maybe somehow you will understand instead of condemning me. I will never be able to live the same way again. To hit it direct, your mom thought I was a bad influence before she hasn't even dreamed. Upon returning from Germany, it was noted that McVeigh began to discuss race-related issues more and more frequently, infusing these with talks of sex, which 
McVeigh was noted as being reticent to discuss beforehand. People that knew him began to realize that McVeigh held what would later be characterized as an extremist racist worldview concerning whites and their place in it as opposed to the other races around them. It should be noted, however, that members of cohort who knew McVeigh that were of other races, some of them have said that they experienced overt racism from McVeigh, while others have gone on the record as stating that they did not experience anything of the sort from him. They did experience it in the army, just not from Timothy McVeigh. So it seems almost as though he was still growing within this new sense of who he was and what his worldviews were. It was during this time that McVeigh really began to rise rapidly through the ranks of the army in his terms of enlisted. He was put on what's known as a fast track to become an E-5. Privately, however, McVeigh began to question whether or not he still wished to serve in the army. This, I would imagine, is due to his burgoing beliefs and his understanding that he was nothing more than a tool to the United States government. Eventually, McVeigh would take his physical examination to qualify for the special forces. This was on August 22nd of 1990. In November of 1990, McVeigh was set to go on leave only for it to be canceled as his unit was ordered to ship out to the Persian Gulf the following month. McVeigh was a veteran of the Gulf War. And from this, as you're going to see in the next episode, his entire worldview continues to spiral out of control. There are conflicting reports of what exactly happened over there that McVeigh was involved with, just as there are conflicting reports as to McVeigh's mental and physical well-being prior to being sent overseas. He had a number of what were described as medical emergencies wherein fluids were seen leaking from various parts of his body. There are also noted unscheduled medical visits for various shots and other things. This has led some people to speculate, again, that McVeigh was part of some form of experimentation. Personal opinion, I don't believe it, but there are people who do believe it, and it is in the interest of fairness and trying to present the whole story, an important part of who Timothy McVeigh was and what exactly made him tick. It is noted that McVeigh himself gave contradictory statements after being arrested, sometimes stating that he was not a member of special forces, other times stating that he had in fact been recruited not by special forces, but by security agencies. Again, 
this is information that we will likely never know the answer to, but it is of interest, and we will be getting into it more in subsequent episodes. I am going to end the show here with McVeigh being shipped off to the Persian Gulf. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Again, don't forget to check out the Patreon page at tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. If you enjoy this show, please leave a five-star review wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. Subscribe and share on social media. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.